0: Hello, hello, my name is Michael, and I welcome you to What's Your Career, where careers are examined one at a time. Today's guest features Harold Edwards, an air traffic controller. Harold has been doing his job for a few decades, and yet he is still happy with what he does. Harold is also a great storyteller, and you'll hear both exciting and tear-jerking stories that he has experienced. Without further ado, let's jump to the interview. All right, Harold, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from?
1: The only things that I really think that uh, I I raised to professional level of would have been uh, hopefully husband and father, and then,
0: uh,
1: uh, you know, as an air traffic controller. Oh, gee, you asked, uh, what, what else did you ask? Did you ask me if I... Where, where I've been, I don't know. Where, where,
0: where are you from? Where, where, where do you live? From?
1: I'm from Washington. Uh, I've been here 22 years and that is the longest I've been in any place by a magnitude of at least uh, four or five. So I, I guess I say I'm from, from Washington now, from Oak Harbor.
0: Well, oh, that's great. And uh, hopefully you love it up there. It's a beautiful place. And I think everybody should take a trip up to Washington State, especially the west side. Very beautiful up there, especially if you like big trees and lots of greenery. They uh, they live in a fantastic area up there.
1: Yes. Green, definitely yep. green.
0: Yep. All right. Well, let me let me jump to some quick questions before okay. we kind of get the discussion going. So you you hinted at it earlier, but what is your maybe official and maybe non official job title?
1: Well, um, my official jo- ti- uh, job title is <laughs> well, I got a few official job titles. Uh, All right, <laughs> I I have. Uh... The most enduring one is Lead Air Traffic Control Specialist, which is the formal government title for my position. I'm um, currently also uh, been designated as the Assistant NATOPS Instructor for the control tower at NAS Whitby Island.
0: So I, I don't I don't even know what that means. What is uh, what is NATOPS or what was it
1: uh, it was NATOPs, yeah. It's an acronym that if I tried to give it uh, off the top of my head right now, I'd probably mess it up. But uh, we'll just say that that's hmm. uh, Naval Aviation um, Standards. Okay. Uh, so so the more informal title for my position is the Assistant Tower Chief at Naval Air Station Woodby island.
0: Okay. All right. How many, how many years do you have with your current job? And you can define that kind of however you'd like.
1: Well, I'd say my current job uh, has been as a, I would define it as, as a, a civilian air traffic controller at Naval Air Station, would Island. And I am just, let's see, this is May. We're a little under two months away from 22 years here.
0: Okay, so for as long as you've been in Washington, you've had the same job title as air traffic controller.
1: Yes, uh, as long okay. as I've been in Washington. twenty. That's the reason we came to Washington.
0: Okay. All right, well, we'll jump into that in a little bit. Um, how would you rate your job function from 1 to 10? 1 being it's terrible and 10 being it's just the dream job. And this is the function of the job. Well, not the people I, you work with—not the people or, I
1: work with. Yeah. Uh, so you mean the tasks that I do in my job, the
0: Congrats,
1: responsibilities? Yeah. Uh you know, I'm going to say eight. Uh, hmm. oh, because that's good. Because I'm I'm very satisfied, uh, but I always know that I always feel that things could be better. Something could be better.
0: Right. It's not. 100% the dream job, but you got nothing to complain no. about. I, right.
1: I, liter- I literally never dreamt about this job. So it would probably be unfair for me to characterize it as a dream job.
0: <laughs> it, it might be somebody's <laughs> dream job, but it was never yours. Well, okay. I,
1: I, I do know somebody. Yeah, yeah, I know many people who it's uh, been their dream job, so.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, actually, on that note, uh, I work with a young man here uh, near me who's maybe 14, 15 years old. And his dream is to become an air traffic controller. And he does, air, you know, simulators, flight simulators all the time. And that is his dream. That is his goal. Uh, maybe I should put him in contact with you, uh, if he, you know, when he gets a little older and gets serious about it.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, always. I've, I've talked to many people over the years uh, in that that boat a lot of uh, young people yeah Um, so yeah I'd be happy to
0: awesome okay I got I got two more here how would you rate your job happiness like you know you're miserable at work every day To I just I couldn't get any more happy
1: okay now this gets a little bit trickier uh, because if I think about uh, my job happiness over 22 years there were probably some eights and nines. Um, I had to put myself at a seven, maybe even some days dropping down to a six
0: now. So, Um, you know, overall you've got a smile on your face, but but I'm, I'm starting to feel ready to
1: retire. And that's the honest truth. That's, that's what it is. I, I, I love the job. It's been a great job, but you know, after so many years, you start to feel like, well, I'm I'm ready to to move to a next stage of life, and uh, so. Sure. I've been very happy with this job over the years, but I have to be honest and say that, you know, I'm. I'm I'm looking forward to not going into work every day. Right.
0: <laughs> Right, I understand. And and kind of speaking of that, you know, getting older process and whatnot. How many years have you been a working professional? I, I meant to ask well, that I've, earlier.
1: I, I I said I've been here uh, for 22 years, and that was employed as a civilian aircraft controller for the Department of Defense. Uh, but before that, I was a military controller in the Marine Corps for eight years. So really, I'm sitting at about 30 years of doing this job.
0: Okay, all right, perfect. Um, and did you get a college degree?
1: Well, I did, sort of. I mean, it's it's uh, nothing I write home about. I, I did obtain my associate's degree.
0: All right, and was that before you started working or after no. or in the middle?
1: No, that was. Um, Let's see. I'd probably, well, see, I started here in 1999. I think I went back to school. I started going to school in 2003. And I think I finished my associates in like 06. Uh, So, and that's kind of what I, that's when I threw in the towel. (laughs) So what what was
0: the motivating factor? Why do you want to go back to school, get your associates?
1: Well, I had my GI Bill. And uh, When you get out of the military, ah, yes. if you contributed yeah. to GI Bill, uh, the version I was under back then, they have a, a much more robust version now. Uh, it's just quite amazing, actually. Uh, but the version I had is you had 10 years to use it. And so I realized I was in that time frame where if I didn't start going to school, I would just never be able to use it. And so I started going to school. I went to school three-quarter time while working full-time. And hmm. you know uh, with family and kids and all that that entails and I did that like I said for about three years to finish my associates but um, I realized over that process that it was taking an awful lot of time I mean it was it was a big commitment and uh, the thing is is that there really wasn't any Benefit to my career of getting a degree. Um, at that point, honestly, it's a, it's an interesting aspect about air traffic control is there's very little upward mobility. You you get a job usually in one place. You know, some people go to a couple different places, and you know, move up from a lower level facility to a little bit higher over their careers. But the vast majority as a civilian anyways, end up in one location. And so I, you know, there's, there were only um, nine of us civilians and we had one supervisor. So, hmm. I, you know, I'm looking at that and going like, well, what what is the degree going to do for me? And honestly, it wouldn't do anything. And so I just made the assessment that I was, very happy with my job. I was making good money. Getting a degree wouldn't be more money. Uh, the degree i right. started going into wouldn't lead to an alternate career path that would be perhaps more sus- offer more opportunities. So I just said, you know, it's not, I'd love to learn. Uh, and I, I, I would consider myself a learner. I've taught myself to do many things over the years, uh, but I didn't see the benefit of taking away from my personal time, my family time to continue just to say, yeah, I got this degree.
0: Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, with your background, you've hinted at being kind of in in military and uh, it makes sense that, you know, the mobility of your career isn't necessarily enhanced with a degree with the function that that you're in. Um, And let's, let's kind of briefly go back in history a little bit. Let's uh, how did you get to where you are? Um, you know, was that an, an active choice that you made to become an air traffic controller? Or did you just kind of fall into the role? Uh, how did that come about?
1: Well, I, I fell into the role. I, I think I got a fun little story. I was 19 years old. I'm living in California, recently married, uh, cannot afford to live i I was was running a copy machine at a law firm that was my job couldn't afford to go to college i couldn't afford to even have an apartment and so here i am what am i going to do and the the military just felt like a natural uh, fit version but this is one of my favorite stories of my life actually so my dad had been in the air force my grandfather had been in the army um so i thought well you know what maybe i should just go and see about joining the navy so i go see a navy recruiter and uh, to join the military you have to take an entrance exam and i had actually taken it as i believe a senior in high school and so i go see the navy recruiter and he pulls up my score and he was like oh these are pretty high scores it's like oh thanks and he says you know what you should do you should become a nuclear engineer yeah and you know because i scored high enough to get into the navy nuke program which uh, it's a pretty impressive program. However, it yeah, sounds awesome. However, because it involves, it involves, I believe almost two years of school with the Navy. So they require you to sign up for six years. Here I am just barely turning 19. Six years is like a third of my life. yeah. I mean, how do you commit to do something for a third of your life? That, no, <laughs> I was like, that scared me. I was like, no, 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 no. And I, I pretty much ran out of the Navy recruiter's office. So I was like, well, let me go, let me go talk to the army. So I go see an army recruiter and he says, oh, you gone not see anybody else. And I said, well, I saw the Navy he goes, oh, what'd they say? I said, well, they wanted me to be a nuke. And, uh, but that requires a six year contract. I can't commit to six years. I don't know if I'm going to like this military thing or not. And he goes, Hey, I got a deal for you I can get you a two year enlistment. I was like, oh, okay. That sounds interesting. I said, so w- what kind of job could I do for just a two year enlistment? You can, you know, you can do anything for two years. Right. He goes, well, your choices are a little bit limited with two years. You can be a tank turret repairman or you can be a field wireman. If you ever seen any of those old, World War II or World War I movies with the, the army soldier, and he's crawling across the battlefield with a big spool of wire on his back from foxhole to foxhole. That's a filled wireman.
0: <laughs> hmm.
1: I I so, said, <laughs> I said, uh, no, I'll see you. And I got out of there.
0: <laughs> no thanks to either yeah. of those options. Uh, you so you want to work on tanks? I mean, how cool would that have been, right? Just be a sound tank good. mechanic? No, no, not a tank
1: mechanic. Very specifically, a tank turret repairman only repairing the <laughs> turret and so that that made me nervous like oh i had envisioned uh, like okay hey we just got hit by that round edwards get out of the tank get out there while they're shooting at you and fix the turret so we can turn the gun no no i'm good
0: okay <laughs> no army
1: so, so no army so then i uh i go see the air force recruiter i walk in the air force recruiter and you know i'm like hey so what's it like to be in the air force and i said oh it's you know air force isn't even like being in the military uh you know it, just think of it as like having a regular job except for we just give you the clothes you got to wear to work and i was like mm. and they said it's actually really easy it's no big deal and i ran out of there because i was like they could be lying to me it's the military so okay, yeah, yeah. I, I figured that they were lying to me. I, it just sounded too good to be true. Now, now with my experience in the uh, the, the military over the years, I, I think that they are being pretty accurate.
0: <laughs> Air Force is the I think, easy way I think, out. Huh? I think it
1: might have been uh, kind of, uh, yeah, I think it would have been, uh, uh, they were at least truthful. Yeah. So I waited a couple of weeks and I was like, I still don't know what to do. I said, well, I guess I should go see a Marine Corps recruiter. I walked in and see a Marine Corps recruiter and he goes, I go, well, okay. What jobs can I get? He goes, Oh, we can't make any promises. I'm like, all right, well.
0: Well, what is that supposed to mean? You could just do anything, like and-
1: well, whatever they need me to do, they're gonna decide for me. He he would give me this broad option of something in aviation. We can let you come in and we can guarantee that you'll get something in aviation. But that could be anything from um from a parachute rigger to an electrician to a guy who fuels aircraft or an air traffic controller. And I was like, hmm, well, no promises, huh? And then I go, well, what's it like to be a marine? He goes, Oh, it's hard. I was like, we're gonna tell you where to go. You're gonna work long hours. I said, well, what's boot camp like? He's you're probably gonna cry sometimes. You're gonna, <laughs> gonna take you to a breaking point. You're gonna physically hurt. You're gonna be emotionally worn out. You're gonna be exhausted. And I thought I think this guy's telling me the truth because he hasn't told me a single good thing. <laughs> I said you were sold. I was sold. I was sold on what I perceived as honesty. And he was pretty honest.
0: <laughs>
1: so that's what ended me up in the Marine Corps. And like I said earlier, this was not a dream job. Aircraft control is not something I'd ever really thought of. And um it's actually I, I think right then like it was like I think it was eleventh or twelfth week of boot camp that Uh, We found out very specifically what job we got, and that's when they just said, Edwards, air traffic control. And I was like,
0: oh. And you didn't didn't sign up for that? You didn't, you know, sell yourself as an air traffic controller, anything?
1: No. It was just random,
0: as far as you're aware.
1: The Marine Corps needed air traffic controllers, and I had the scores for it, so I got sent to it. That was it. That's how I got this career. Uh, we can talk, uh, talk about, you know, receiving blessings and guidance that you didn't necessarily ask for, uh, at many points in my life, but that was one of them where I had no idea, but boy, that was, that was just really a good, uh, blessing that worked out for me very well. It turned out to be something that was intriguing and engaging mentally and, um, something I was good at.
0: I mean, that that's a phenomenal story for everybody listening to this. Can you imagine just not knowing what you want to do, you know, bumping through life, trying, you know, stumbling job to job, and then you get handed a job basically, and you don't know anything about it and you fall in love with it. And it becomes maybe not quite a dream job, but it becomes your career that you love that's that's a that's a 10 out of 10 scenario there that's amazing and yes I'm, I'm glad you recognize it as as a great blessing that you've received in your life because that's n- not too many people end up in a in a career that they love through that sort of scenario so that that's encouraging yep. and that's awesome to hear
1: very fortunate and uh, you know I've many times over the years I've had people talk to me about you know joining the military and and I've always said hey yeah if you can get it Air traffic patrol is a good job. You want to know why? doesn't matter where you go. You're going to have air conditioning.
0: (laughs) There's one perk.
1: (laughs) All the equipment's got to stay cool. And so you're going to have air conditioning. You'd be out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of the ocean. You're going to have air conditioning. Everybody else is sweating, working in the sun. You're sitting in a chair. Nice air conditioning.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There's a perk. I like it. So... Now that you've been working this job for so long, um, tell us, what, what does a eight-hour shift look like? Or how many, how many hours do you work? And what's kind of the minute-to-minute, day-by-day things, the tasks that keep you busy? Well, uh, that's varied
1: over the years. Uh, you know, a, uh, I've worked in a few different locations in the military. And uh, I got fortunate there that I went to places that were considered fairly busy. Uh, because that gave me when I was young the experience to learn the skills to work busier traffic and heavier workloads. And um, I've had a few transitions and I kind of talked about this earlier, but when I said I was kind of feeling ready to retire, you kind of, you know, you do the same thing day in and day out for years, you start to crave something a little different. So pretty much for the first uh, well, if you count the eight years in the military, I was working as the radar controller and approach controller. And when I got hired here in Whitby, that's what I was actually hired to do is to work as an approach controller. And uh, that involves looking at a radar scope. And directing uh, aircraft, uh, in our case, in the ter- what we call the terminal environment, um, the phase of departing and arriving at the airport, uh, not so much the phase of you know, when you, you go on that flight in that airliner, you, you depart the airport and that's the tower controller working like five miles or so around the airport. And then you go to what they call an approach controller and they they'll work, you know, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles out from the airport. And then further out than that, uh, you go to this what they call in route, which is uh, center controllers that. You know, are focused more on that once you reach those cruising altitudes and you're crossing the whole United States, you, you go
0: with them. Mm-hmm.
1: So I've worked in that terminal environment, uh, guiding aircraft into and out of uh, uh, the airports around uh, the North Puget Sound here for for years and years. Um, working for the Navy as a civilian, one of my primary duties has been to actually instruct uh navy controllers you know uh military controllers in general they spend three to five years in a a given location and then they get orders to go to a new location whether in the navy or whether it's a ship or another station in the um another shore station uh so there's a constant flow of them going in and out and so you you train somebody and here it would be um to get through approach is probably about a two and a half to three year training process so oh, wow. well you got a few there's 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 some baby steps there's there's uh junior positions that i, I won't go too far into the weeds with that you got to work your way through that takes several months each before you actually get to be the guy sitting at the scope talking to the airplanes and uh that actually talking to the airplanes is you know a six to eight month training process so <clears throat> to get all the way through uh you know from arriving at the facility to getting qualified as an as a approach controller you know two to three years depending on your prior experience and stuff but
0: okay. then
1: that means that they then just work for one to two more years and then they leave so it's a constant constant training of uh one trainee after another and that has really been one of the biggest aspects of my job here I, I was fortunate, um, oh gee, I don't even know how many years ago it was now, three, three four years maybe in that time frame, um, they decided that they wanted to have a civilian controller up in the, the tower here at be, and I honestly had had very little tower experience, and I kind of jumped on the opportunity, kind of viewing it as a mid-career break, something new. Uh, You know, instead of sitting there day in and day out looking at a a scope and telling the airplanes fly this heading, climb to this altitude, descend to this altitude, it it became a uh, little bit more, uh, well, some people like to say it's kind of like the Wild West (laughs) because you do a lot more of, uh, you know, hey, you see him, follow him, turn there, turn here, go up this way, fly around there, you know. Huh. And you're you're actually doing the clear to land, clear for takeoff, uh, uh, things that you would hear and expect that uh, people most frequently associate with air traffic control, although the bulk of air traffic controllers are sitting in front of a radar scope and all over the country. So, like I said, my my uh, a day in and day out here right now is I show up and. Uh, recently this, just this year, I've gotten this, uh, designation as assistant tower chief, uh, just to kind of add some experience level to that, because that is actually usually a chief in the Navy. Well, the the tower chief is a chief. Um, the assistant is usually, you know, another sailor. It's maybe a chief or maybe a senior first class E six. Uh, but, um, they decided they needed a little bit more stability with that because Tower Chiefs were only staying about a year. Because likewise, they had to get all these qualifications. By the time they get them, they got maybe a year left, and then they're out. So many things happen that just require uh, the continuity that they they decided that hey, let's let's make this a civilian position and and I. Well, you took it. I took it. Yeah. When they offered it, I took it. I said, sure. So when I show up in the morning, uh, part of the perks of this is I've gone away from shift work Uh, probably up until, you know, about three, four years ago, I was working shifts four days on, two days off, five days on, two days off, Uh, you know, mornings, evenings, uh, way back in the beginning of my career, uh, some mid-watches. Constantly days and, off. And is, that,
0: is that how most air traffic control jobs are?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, and, the vast majority are. Yeah.
0: And real quick, let me back up just a tad bit. Is, is your position, obviously you're with your civilian. Yeah. Um, But is your position similar to what their, what air traffic controllers would do at a, a traditional airport? Or is it quite a bit different
1: than that? Uh, it's it's very similar. Uh, the tower here is a little bit different than when you get at a traditional airport, just because of the uh, the military training environment that the aircraft have. Uh, the radar aspect is identical. Um,
0: right. The processes and, are the same. Well, not only, actually, not
1: only not yeah. only that, but uh, Woodby Island here uh, they control more civilian traffic not the tower but the approach control control more civilian and air carrier traffic than they do military
0: Oh interesting so from from your military base from from your your station at Woodby Island Yeah you're controlling maybe the majority or a, a large uh, portion of the of the so civilian traffic of the passenger airplanes that go near you is that? Oh yeah, yeah, works? all
1: of them. The uh, the the on the approach control, um, every aircraft operating nine thousand feet and below, uh, about an area from the Cascades almost out to the Pacific and uh, from north of Seattle almost to well, we actually do share air. We we border up against Canada. Anybody flying through there is is controlled by controllers here at Whidbey Island. So in large part it's exactly the same job
0: okay that makes sense how many how many airplanes do you talk to in a day uh, you know i guess a typical air traffic controller up in the tower how many airplanes um, would you talk to in a day or in an well, hour or whatever that looks like well we we
1: tend to in the tower we tend to break it down not necessarily by how many airplanes by ha- but by how many operations Uh, Because you might have one airplane that flies around in the tower pattern for an hour doing practice, but he's going to do, you know, in that time, he's going to do 15 touch and goes, right? So uh, a busy time in our tower here um, would probably be in the neighborhood of, you know, 40, 40 40-ish operations. uh, And that's a combination of the departures, uh, landings, touch and goes and, and such, um and sorry, that's
0: 40 per hour.
1: Per hour. Yeah, that would be Ooh. forty forty ish per hour would be would be pretty busy. Um but there's lots of days where it's a lot slower. So
0: is that is that all controlled by one person or is it a team doing well, 40 an hour?
1: There, there's a there's a well, it's uh, both. So <laughs> you have a tower team, which uh that we our tower here has four positions. You have a supervisor who's monitoring and supervising the whole tower cab. You have a local controller, that's what they call him, that's uh, talking to all the aircraft in the air and the aircraft on the runway. Uh, So he's the one doing all the cleared for takeoff, cleared to land, and uh, sequencing the aircraft in the pattern. Uh, Then you have a ground controller who's taxiing the aircraft to the runways back from the runways and controlling all the vehicles. So there's constantly vehicles driving around the airfield as well. And uh, then we have a fourth controller, which we call a flight data and they're kind of like a administrative position that tracks what planes are coming, what planes have arrived, when they arrived and do coordination between the tower and the approach control. So there is a team, but it's one person, doing the actual talking on the radio to the aircraft in the air.
0: Okay. Right. That makes sense. That's a, uh, so you, I mean, 90% of your time is talking over the radio.
1: Maybe. <laughs> well, 90% of my time,
0: well, I guess you're, In- you're more training. and. and uh, yeah, and I, I, I
1: spend more time doing supervisory roles and uh, instructing. And when I'm instructing, we're, we're both wearing headsets. We're both plugged into the same radios, and I'm letting the, the trainee do the talking. I'm coaching and only try to key up and talk on the radio myself when uh, things get too busy for the trainee, sort of like a, you know a, a backstop. I'll right. step in and you know catch everything up, do a few things, maybe deal with the more complicated tasks that the trainee doesn't have experience with, yet, and then back off and turn it back over to the trainee.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But generally speaking, the job of an air traffic controller is to be on the radio in connection, yeah, on the radio, riding. yeah. Guiding, guiding. I mean, that's kind of the definition of an air traffic control. You, know, you control the traffic in the air. So the only way to do that is to talk to the pilots, and I, I guess that makes sense. I, I just, yeah. you know, I wanted I, to kind of feel it out a little bit. Yeah.
1: More. There, well, there's interesting things in the future uh, with automation and computerization that that's going to change, and we're seeing the first steps of that. But for now, you are correct. It's talking on there uh, on the radio and giving instructions. Um, to sequence aircraft and keep them, uh, keep them separated from one another.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, what, what, what would be the, uh, the, the worst task you're in charge of, or the worst task you've had over your, you know, your long career as an air traffic controller? What's the worst part about being in that role?
1: Well, when I was a very junior Marine, I had to clean the bathroom. Um,
0: well, <laughs>
1: so maybe that was, uh, but I, I have a feeling that's not necessarily what you're asking about.
0: You know, we've all been there, I think at least in high school or something. Uh, but no, that's not, that's, that's not specific to an air traffic controller. Um, uh,
1: well, what do you mean about worst? I, 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 um,
0: so the thing that you dread most, you're like, Oh, I really don't want to talk to this type of person today or I really don't want to enter in the data or or do some menial task, uh, but that's maybe vital to the position of air traffic controller.
1: Well, um, I I don't know that there's anything that I really truly dread along there. You know, for the most part, there's a very good relationship between pilots and controllers. So, you know, where there, there's some individuals who, you know, are kind of, uh, I guess we could say jerks um, that you come in contact with, but that happens in any, any field. Right. Uh, so I don't think that there's anybody I dread talking to, or don't want to talk to today or even the tasks, some of the administrative tasks. All right. The most tedious administrative task is writing uh, trainee evaluations on a daily basis, documenting mm-hmm. everything that they did wrong Uh, providing references, showing them what was wrong about it and giving suggestions and documenting that in a written form every day. That is absolutely the most tedious, but...
0: um, There you go. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think most people would agree with you. That sort of documentation and form filling out and paperwork is not what most people love about their job. And
1: and even the training, it's interesting. Sometimes I, I get great satisfaction providing instruction and teaching but other times you kind of you know especially going one trainee to another to another and you're like yeah you guys all just are starting to blend together i know exactly what you're going to do it's wrong why do i have to do this again <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's funny uh, that's good okay uh let's yeah let's keep moving we are i'm enjoying this conversation but let's let's try to keep moving it along okay I'll try to um,
1: not tell any more good stories, <laughs>
0: well, my next question i I want a story actually what what's tell me tell me something exciting that you know that makes your heart beat a little bit quicker in a good way uh, at your job. well,
1: in a good way. Uh, when a plan really comes together, uh, sometimes when it's just uh, busy, there's a level of busyness that is perfect. <laughs> Where, yeah. where if it got if it gets too busy, it's just hard work, and you feel like you're just coming from battling from behind the whole time, and nobody likes that. But there's this level of busy where you are constantly working, you're constantly making transmissions. You're, but everything falls together, and you know after an hour, hour and a half of that, and you you get to take a little break, you get to look back on, you say like everything worked perfect there. That was great. You know, that'll get you kind of pumped and jazzed about the, uh, about the job. Um,
0: yeah, that would be, you know, one of those moments where you're like, man, I did that and I did a good job. You're kind of proud of yourself a little bit and I'm sure because you do that day in and day out, I'm sure that definitely brings a level of satisfaction to your job. Like, Hey, you know, I've really proven myself here with, with how well I handled that situation, even if it's, you know, maybe it, somewhat it, routine and normal, it it still yeah. brings you that level of satisfaction with,
1: with uh, less regularity. You have opportunities where you're assisting aircraft in distress or, or emergency aircraft that, that, um, you know, suddenly they're relying on you to get things right. And uh, you know, they're, Uh, the success or failure of their flight sometimes meaning the uh their life uh hangs in the balance and uh it never would take away from the pilots because they're the ones flying the plane they're the ones uh um that ultimately can go home or not go home controllers always going to go home but uh, having a role in a successful outcome in emergency situations is, is that's, that's uh, an adrenaline uh, filled experience as well. Uh, for example, uh, let's see, I'll tell you, um, I don't know, is last fall uh, we had an aircraft, a flight two aircraft, were coming back in. And I don't remember their call signs now. It's two F eighteens and uh the lead aircraft had reported that his wingman was uh his radio was out. He was uh they call Nordo, so because he had no radio. But he had <laughs> but when they're in a okay. flight like that, they can do hand signals to one another, you know, and they can see from cockpit to cockpit. And so they're um staggered in and basically the lead aircraft is is coming in and he's the one talking to the controllers and his wingman is uh, you know, staggering in slightly behind him and bring him in. We clear into land and the first aircraft lands and the second aircraft lands. And they're both on the runway because they're a formation flight. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the, that second aircraft just, he takes back off. <laughs> he takes back off literally over the top of, of his uh, lead aircraft. And he has no radio. His lead aircraft is now on the ground, has landed. He has no radio. And immediately, my mind just queued in, okay, why didn't he land? That was a dangerous operation he just did. His brakes have got to have failed. That's about the only reason that he would do that. Uh, and then, um, so I, I, I key up on the radio. I was like, you know, verify uh, you have a brake failure by rocking your wings. He rocks his wings. Okay. Uh, So in the Navy, you know, the aircraft are equipped with tail hooks, and they can take arrested landings. That's how they land on an aircraft carrier. But they can also, we have arresting gear on the runways that they will use in cases like this. And I told them, I said, we have uh, arresting gear available on this other runway. Would you like to navigate for that runway? And he rocks his wings. Uh, Oh, and the other part I had... Filtered into the, uh, my mind is just like three days prior. I remembered that same squadron had an aircraft that had had a brake failure, and that's what just sealed the deal. That's got to be what this is. He's probably in that same aircraft. It still has a problem, and uh, so you know, with that knowledge, we I immediately got him around. He comes back around. He lands on the uh, the other runway. He takes that arrestment. You know, we've pulled the what they call the crash phone, which We goes uh, right to the several people on base, but most importantly, it goes to the uh, crash crew, the the rescue personnel on the base. And they've rolled out there with their fire trucks and everything turned out great. And it was like I had uh, a couple of the younger and I'm guilty of sometimes saying kids, but that's because (laughs) a lot of the people I work with are are the age of my kids. So, yeah, (laughs) I just I'm old. They're kids. They're kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the kids said, "How did you know all that?" It's like, I don't know. I just knew it because I've been doing this for so long. Uh, but that was an exciting yeah. moment. That you know, there, there, there are those.
0: I mean, that uh, got my heart moving a little bit. You know, in anticipation of how it was going to turn out. That's yeah. that's dramatic. That that's crazy, yeah. and it ma- it makes me, uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure it makes you really, you know, appreciate the value that you that you contribute in your job because the, you know, if you weren't there, who knows what, what could have happened. Uh, yep. and that kind of, you know, leads me to this question and, you know, you don't need to go into details if you don't want to, but have you, you know, been a part of tragic incidents that have maybe left people, uh, scarred or not around anymore?
1: Uh, multiple times. Yeah. Uh, you can't do this job for this long and not be around when an airplane crashes. Um, yeah. A couple, you know, a couple stand out uh, in my mind. I've never, uh, thank heavens, I've, I've never been a contributing factor uh, to any of these. You know, they've always either been uh, due to um, mechanical failures or pilot error. And, and so I, I, I don't know how I could ever or how I would react if I ever was a contributing factor um, to them. But yeah, no, there's been several times and, you know, a couple sticking in in my mind. Um, there was one, uh, I think it was like in 2006, 2007 when, uh, I think it was a bonanza Had three people on board and the weather was just horrible. Weather was horrible. And this airplane had come from Montana and he shows up and, told him the airport he was trying to go to. I said, uh, the weather's really, really poor.
0: Well, what Uh, type of uh, aircraft was this? Was it a passenger or it was, it was a,
1: it was a small civilian airplane. Uh, it was a Beechcraft Bonanza. I think that that could seat, you know, maybe in the neighborhood of six, six people. Um, but there were three on board and, um, there were just, were no airplanes flying. It was, I was sitting there working and not doing anything, just talking because uh, there was no airplanes flying because the weather was that bad. And uh, this guy shows up, he'd flown all the way from Montana. And I told him the weather at the airport he was trying to go to. And he, it it was below, it was what we call below the minimums there, but uh, it's up to the pilot to decide whether he's going to attempt to go into that airport or not. And so, uh, you know, he said, he expressed that he wanted to try. And, uh, he asked about another airport that was nearby and I checked and as they hadn't had anybody land there. And I, I suggested, uh, a, a different airport. Uh, it's about, I don't know, about 50 miles away that although their weather was poor, it was about the best there was in the area. Um, and, he said, Well, I guess if this doesn't work, we'll have to go down there. And, but he wanted to try it this airport. And so he he tried the approach. And uh, once they start descending into the airport, if there's not a tower, we just switch into a frequency that they can talk to any other airplanes that are in that area and switch more to that frequency. And sure enough, a few minutes later, here he's climbing back up. He didn't make it in. And I'd asked him, What do you want to do? And he's like, oh, I, I saw the airport right at the last second. I want to try it again. And man, I tell you the whole time i i just I didn't feel good about it, and uh you know, but it's you know my job provided service, and I provided him with all the information I could and um ultimately, he decided to try one more time, and he went in there, and this time, I think he was probably just um he thought he got so close the first time maybe if he was just a little bit lower but he also wasn't familiar with the area because he was from montana and he he ended up hitting some trees because he was pushing the edge and he was a little too low for the approach he was flying and and that was it and it, it was hard it was hard because you know you know you know he's crashed uh, when he were calling the people in the airport and they're like no n- no plane has arrived and You know, I last saw him a few miles from the airport and.
0: Yeah, that's
1: hard. It is. And, you know, there's been several other crashes. You can't, like I said, you you can't do this job for this long and not be involved because we like to get on our airlines. Airliners are so, so safe. They are absolutely safe. But um, you can't do anything uh, with the volume that we do in this country of, like flying and have things like this happen from time to time. So, you know, I guess I'd equate, yeah. it, I'd equate it somewhat to, uh, you know, you're going to see a crash when you're driving down the freeway. Right. I mean, everybody who's driven around any number of years has seen a crash and, you know, uh, aviation is a form of transportation and it's, it's just that the crashes tend to be a little worse when they happen. And
0: so, absolutely.
1: it it's a, it's an aspect of the job that you have to be able to accept. And if you're somebody who stresses about that, it's probably not a good job for you. Um, right. You know, if you don't think that you could handle one, that responsibility, but then two, be able to carry on when something does happen, because you don't, it's not like everything else stops when something bad happens. You, you still got mm-hmm. more airplanes out there usually, and you still got more to do. And, uh so yep. th- that's kind of the stress factor i guess that's involved with the job
0: yeah and you know there's a lot of jobs out there that deal with this sort of heartbreak and emotional toll you can think of any sort of emergency you know oh, yeah, uh, po- police force anybody oh, yeah. in, in medical centers uh, there's, there's a lot of people that deal with this sort of stress and uh, it's a type of stress that many others are not familiar with and wouldn't know how to handle and oh yeah and, and I, you know for those that are looking for a second career uh, you know that's something you got to take into account is what are what are kind of the stresses or the risks that that go along with that particular job and and in this case you know dealing with those traumatic events is is part of the job
1: yeah and and i've seen several people over the i've had several st- Uh, trainees over the years who haven't made it uh, partially because they just couldn't, not because they couldn't understand the job. uh, They couldn't deal with that stress factor. You know, they couldn't deal with, they would sometimes freeze up in those moments because they didn't want to be that contributing factor. And they were worried about being that contributing factor. Uh, And that causes them to freeze and it's not the kind of job you can freeze in.
0: Yeah. Yeah it's an on call. Yeah, you got to be there. You've got to perform. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh let's let's start to wrap it up. I still got a few okay. uh, quick quick things I want to ask. Uh how would you how would you rate the kind of the salary potential of of an air traffic controller in general with or without the military involved? Is it you know, is this what what would be maybe a cap or a starting place for a salary? And, uh, you know, would you call it fair?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it's pretty fair. I mean, if you consider if you consider you don't have to have a college degree to do this job, you can make uh, a good, comfortable living doing it. Um, you know, it. It's a it's a job that usually starts off maybe a little bit low, but I think currently, and like I said, I've been doing this for so long, I really haven't looked into the the data. But I I think currently, in the forty to fifty thousand dollar year range is where, where you might start out, uh, but very quickly you'll escalate. That that's as a trainee, just new coming into it, uh, hmm. and then I think it'd be um, the vast majority. Some of the busier, more complex uh HF control centers for the FAA, uh, the controllers probably top out in the 150 to 180 thousand dollar range. Um, but the average okay, is so- probably the average is probably in the 120s uh, across the country. Uh, once you're fully okay, qualified so- and get some years under your belt.
0: Right. So you mentioned earlier there's maybe not a lot of upward mobility, but it sounds like as far as the, the salary goes, the the pay, you know, you're not necessarily limited to a kind of a reduced salary. I mean, you know, making 150, 180, that's I mean, you know, if you wanna make more than that, you know, you gotta be looking at a different career and, and that that. That's yeah. the same for a lot of careers, so yeah, and, uh, that, and, that's, that's a good amount of money, uh, especially without the, a college degree necessary. That's, that's a good yeah. point you brought up the, there.
1: The uh, the upper mobility aspect becomes that uh, once you're fully qualified as a what you call a journeyman controller, and you're you're just going into work doing the same job, and this could be you're expected to do that for the next 20 25 years. Uh, there's not a like, well, now I'll move up to there's very limited administrative and supervisory type roles and a lot of those take you away from actually controlling and so they're semi career changes so there's not a uh you know you very quickly qualification wise reach your max and that can be that can be a stressor for people sometimes because sometimes people need further development in their life uh, and their job uh is what that is. For me, I've been fine with that because I develop other things. I develop other talents and skills. Uh you know, right. And you spend and time with family. I spend time with family, yeah. I learn how to absolutely. build absolutely do woodworking, w- whatever it is. So, you know, because we uh, I think as people we need to continually learn and evolve and and a lot of people do that in their career. Um
0: but air controls
1: not one that you could do that. So if you can find other avenues of life to meet that need, then it's a good career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, So uh, thinking about others and we've kind of been talking about this recently, um, but what are some of the, maybe some attributes and some, some qualities, what, what type of person would, would like your job would, would find your job just to be the dream job.
1: Well, I would say that most people I encounter in this field that enjoy it are not, uh, easily stressed out. They don't, they don't sweat things. There's a, there's almost always a good sense of humor that goes with it. And I don't know if that's part of the, what keeps you sane and keeps you relaxed, uh, and helps you recover (laughs) from the stressful moments. Uh, but also, You have to be analytical. You're constantly evaluating things. You know, not necessarily. You know, we're not busting out pens and calculators to calculate things, but you're able to look at things and say, "Okay, well, he's going this fast. He's going that fast. That's about this." A lot of it's estimating. You know, you don't need to know that the closure rate is 285 miles per hour as long as you know that as long as you know that i got about i got about uh 30 seconds before i got to turn this guy you know you, you get a feel so you have to be able to feel things out and be a little bit intuitive uh for that and you have to be able to think in three dimensions and that's something that's hard for a lot of people because you're thinking you know up down as well as left right and forward and backward and that's sometimes hard. So so the ability to think in three dimensions is a, a useful skill to have. Um, and we, uh, you have to enjoy technical manuals.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you mm-hmm. spend a lot
1: of, yeah, you spend <laughs> a lot of time dissecting minute sentences in technical manuals and then figuring out how that applies to real world search away- situations. And, uh, so, you know, it's- so you're,
0: you're kind of starting to sound more and more like a, like a scientist maybe even like a <laughs> geologist <laughs> like I am. Right. What? I mean, you think what? of scientists as reading, you know, scientific books and pulling out equations. And, and then you think of a geologist like myself as, a descriptive science and interpretive and you're kind of describing all of those things right there yeah. you need and, to you need to think about it you don't need to pull out a calculator you got to think about it you got to apply to you know space you know you got to wiggle your fingers in the air a little bit to make sure you're you know you've got your calculations correct so to say and that's, yeah that's exactly what a geologist does too i can uh, see that that's pretty funny. i can
1: see that yeah
0: uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. I like that. I like how those those align. Never thought they would. Okay. Well, uh, look, I really appreciate your time. And this has been very enlightening. Uh, I, you know, I, I did not know many of these aspects about your job. And uh, I, I'm glad we've been able to have this interview. My last question for you is, would you be willing to Talk to people who have further questions about your career, who would like to maybe network with you personally.
1: Sure, sure. Excellent. I mean, I think I think it's I think it's evident, uh, you know, after all this time we spent talking here, that uh, I guess I kind of do like talking about my job. <laughs>
0: You do indeed. Most people do, I've come to find. Yeah. And uh, most people are willing to talk to other people who are who are interested. And and honestly, if anybody gets to this point in the podcast, uh, you know, they might be interested in talking to you because this has been this has been a, a good run. So
1: well Michael, I, I wish you uh tons of success and trust I will be a uh avid listener as this uh chapter in your life. Uh evolves
0: well thank you i appreciate it you have a good day you too all right goodbye bye